0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms and the new shotgun from Savage, the Renegade. At the core of the Renegade is an industry-first patented dual-valve self-regulating gas system made to cycle higher power loads with the same reliable consistency as lower power target loads, all while cutting down on recoil. Now, this The shotgun is ergonomic, it's well-balanced, it has a patented stock pad that knocks down recoil, and definitely check out the information about the the dual valve gas system that uh, allows for this consistency, right? Uh, There is so many cool, creative things that Savage has done with his shotgun. If you want to learn more about the Renegade, visit savagearms.com slash renegade.
1: Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Alright guys, before we kick off this week's podcast, just want to chat with you guys for a second about Virtual Property Evaluations, VPE is what we call them, through Land and Legacy. Guys, this is an awesome opportunity for you to interact with Adam or myself directly directly through this property evaluation, we do it through teleconferencing. We're looking at maps, we're looking at um, trail camera information, we're looking at on site photographs, aerial photographs of the property to help you and guide you through some of the toughest questions um, when it comes to managing a property. Looking at plant communities and timber stand improvement, food plot techniques. This is an opportunity to get with us, spend time with us online, virtually, and get some quality information to help guide you on your property. This doesn't replace an on-site consultation, however, it's still a good way to get solid information and allow you guys to move the needle on conservation and habitat improvements. Hope you guys check out Virtual Property Evaluations, click on the consultation tab at www.landandlegacy.tv and reach out to us. We would love to help you guys out. Now sit back and enjoy this week's podcast. All right, Kip, are you there? I'm here. How you doing? Oh, man, I am doing good. Just enjoying spring and um, getting ready to get on the road. But I hear you've been turkey hunting a little bit.
2: Yeah, we uh, our season here in Pennsylvania this year came in much later than normal. So, uh, man, I have a lot of buddies around the country that had a bunch of birds on the ground before we even got to get started. But uh, we're uh, we're into it now, so I'm a happy boy.
1: Good deal. Well, everyone, if you don't know Kip Adams, shame on you. He is obviously with the QDMA. Kip, how long have you been with the QDMA, and and what specifically is your role there? I've
2: been with them for for 18 years, and uh, man, I can't believe it's been that long. It uh, it has gone by quickly, but uh, it's been a long time now, but I, I am our Director of Conservation, So uh, I like to think of myself as having uh, the best job that QDMA offers. I I get to have my hands in in some research and uh, overseeing our educational programs and our advocacy work, so uh, the deer steward stuff, uh, our our hunting heritage program. So I get into a little bit of all the good stuff, so I'm I'm very lucky.
1: That's awesome, awesome. If you were, obviously you've been doing deer work for, for longer than that, but if you were to sum up your favorite habitat technique that you use on a routine basis, what would that be? And would that also be one of the biggest impacts that you've made on your family's property in the past?
2: A lot. I'll preface that by just giving a little bit of background, kind of how I'm coming at this. So sure. I grew up on a dairy farm, so I have always been around agriculture, planting. Um, so uh, I, I love agriculture. Uh, I still raise beef cattle today. And uh, so for a long time, you know, uh, food plots were, were king for me. You know, mm-hmm. that was my tie to my childhood. You know, I love having my hands dirty. I love teaching others how to do that. And, uh, and I still love to plant food plots and still plant a bunch. However... Having said that, my favorite habitat technique um, right now, and this has really come about within about the last five years, mm-hmm. um, because it's kind of a, a new thing, and it's it's like the next step in the, in the habitat evolution, is uh, is managing early successional vegetation. Nice. And uh, the, and I'll tell you, there's a couple of reasons why I am I am so enamored with that. One is that it is. So much cheaper than planting food. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, what, you know, the amount that, uh, that I spend uh, per acre, you know, lime, seed, fertilizer, yeah. herbicide, time, all that, it, which Adds is up. good. You know, and I love to do that and, and I will always do that. But, uh, you know, what I can accomplish from a, from a deer and a wildlife perspective, managing early successional vegetation, you know, I can manage so many more acres and get such a bigger impact. For for less dollars, mm-hmm. so uh, so from that end of it, uh, that is pretty darn appealing.
1: Absolutely, I love that. I love that. So, how many acres do you think you've converted, or, or maybe maybe it was old pasture or cropland in the past? How many acres do you have of early successional cover right now on your family's land?
2: Well, I tell you, on our farm, and I guess I probably should have done a little better job explaining exactly what that is. Um, you know, early successional vegetation. Um, many people think of this, you know, as old fields or fallow fields. Um, it is, you know, it's, it's herbaceous stuff. So it's we're not woody stuff. We're not talking about the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's herbaceous stuff, but it's not grasses. We're talking about broadleaf plants. So think of it, an old field you know, that you're not planting. Maybe you used to plant corn or weed or alfalfa or something else there. You're not planting it anymore. So you're not, you know, you're not putting money into seed and all that. Well, that, that soil that's there is full of seeds already, you know, stuff that's there. We are allowing that to you know, be exposed to sunlight so it can grow. Now, some of what's in there is really good. Some is not. And in the simplest sense, any of the grasses that want to come out of there, I'm going to kill, it. you know, from, mm-hmm. from a cow end, sure, I can have some grass, but from a deer end, if I kill those grasses and keep encouraging more broadleaf weeds, more broadleaf uh, herbaceous stuff. Some people call them weeds, um, herbaceous plants or whatever. The broadleaf stuff tends to be very good from a, a forage and for deer um, and very good from cover. So that's when we're talking about early successional vegetation. Many people, you know, like an old field, but I'm specifically getting rid of the grasses and mm-hmm. encouraging those broadleaf plants.
1: Yeah, so
2: I love that. Now, I have on our farm. We have within the last five years, we have converted almost forty acres of stuff that either used to be food plots or cattle pastures into early successional vegetation, you know, specifically for those benefits of food and cover for deer. And then ultimately, uh, our hunting is so much better because we have opportunities to hunt those areas as well.
1: Absolutely! Wow, you're kind of you're kind of hitting like every kind of, let's say, point that essentially, like someone, a progression that someone may be able to go through after they hear this podcast. It was very heavy food plot focused, and then a transition maybe into easier management and management of just naturally occurring plant communities that are forb heavy, so we get the benefit of those. So obviously today, if you're listening the title of this podcast is Do Soybeans Really Grow Antlers? And you're you're transitioning super well into, okay, Kip, you know the whitetail deer inside and out. We know that forbs are super beneficial. We know that crude protein levels of soybeans are 28 30%. But all of that being said is we, we really want to break down today how much of an impact does that soybean that you plant really go into the production of antlers and then compare that side by side to naturally occurring plant communities like you're trying to encourage on your farm through early successional um, cover and what essentially that type of management let's say does and impacts antler growth specifically so kind of walk us through if you will the physiology of antler development and then how and we we've talked about it a lot on the podcast so people are familiar should be familiar with you know the the late winter stress period and the importance of improving body condition and overall health leading into the spring but but kind of let's pick it up there and then go into that antler development process
2: all right um for clarification again, I'm a big fan of soybeans. Yes. I like soybeans. There's probably nothing that deer like to eat more than soybeans. Um, I plant soybeans all the time. Yelty. I love them. Absolutely. I like them. So, uh, extremely, extremely good for deer. Um, here's how that all fits in together though. And, uh, you know, historically, um, i use myself as an example. You know, I planted a lot of food plots and, uh, deer used them. Turkeys used them. You know, there's a lot of things that use them. So, uh, and then I realized, you know, what? you know, from a hunting end, I can make deer want to use these more if I didn't plant all the way to the edges mm-hmm. and I let the edge kind of grow up into some thick cover. And uh, so to have mostly food, a little bit of cover and that started working good. I, I like that a lot. Well, then I started realizing, you know what? It has kind of evolved into rather than having pain to have a whole field of food and a little bit of cover on the edge. What if I reversed it and I had a whole field of cover? with a firebreak around the edge Mm -hmm. that that I could manage it with and then just plant the firebreak. I could save myself a lot of money. And then anyway, that was kind of the next step where I realized, ooh, this is even better than (laughs) food. So uh, that was kind of my progression down this path. Now, one of the things then that leads into this – we start realizing is everybody who plants something, you know, wants to, to hunt over it or we're taking care of deer and other wildlife. And, and that's a good thing. You know, we should be good stewards of, the, of our, the resources. Well, if you start looking at, you know, the physiology of deer and, you know, their their nutritional needs during the course of the year, uh, we think when do deer start growing antlers? Mm-hmm. And because most people think from a food end, all right, I got to make sure the bucks get all the nutrition they can get. So, you know, they start growing antlers, you know, and certainly in April, in some cases, even a little bit sooner, but in most cases, you know, April. So they're grown in April, May. And then by the time we get into summer, you know, they have already achieved a bunch of their antler growth. Now, you know, they grow for somewhere around 150 days during the year. You know, they shed out often, depending on where you are. But my part of the world, they almost always shed out around Labor Day weekend, or at least the first ones. Mm-hmm. But that means they have been done growing for almost done growing for a few weeks before that, while they're hardening. Yeah, certainly not growing much at all during August. Right. So, uh, right. If you start looking at the timing end, you think, man, you know, like even from where I am in North Central Pennsylvania, and a good year, you know. I may be able to plant corn the end of April. It's almost always May before I can plant corn, Sure. which means, you know, we're talking mid-May at the earliest before the soil is warm enough for me to plant soybeans. So even if they are up, best case, you know, I might have something for deer to just begin to nibble on, you know, beginning of June. Absolutely. And if we start looking at, okay, what has happened in a deer's world between, you know, March and June? And the answer is oh, a lot. <laughs> so a much, amount. <laughs> yeah. deer, you know, we have missed you know the beginning of the antler growth period. Yep. So, which is extremely critical. But even more important than that is for you know, yeah, antler growing antlers are, are you know a little costly. But it is far more expensive for a doe to raise a fawn. Mm-hmm. You know, the yes. lactation is way more energetically demanding. Yes. So. From a manager standpoint, we want to have heavy does in the fall. We want to have big bucks in the fall, and it's you know it really hit me uh, a few years ago. Like you know what, timing wise, even though I am providing really good habitat and all these different things, the most important time period of the year to have your habitat absolutely rocking is coming out of winter.
1: Absolutely. So that springtime
2: is when you know that April certainly beginning of May. You need to have not, you know, soybeans just being planted. And this isn't a knock on soybeans. I still plant soybeans, you know, and they feed deer you know, all summer mm-hmm. and then in the fall and I hunt over them. That's great. But that is not the answer to raising, you know, a very healthy deer herd. You have to make sure that that habitat is absolutely rocking in the spring. So uh, and that's where, in many cases, a lot of food plots miss it. Now, yes. that's also one reason that for my food plot end, I have always planted some some cereal grains, winter wheat, winter rye, mm-hmm. so that I have some food plots available in the spring. And then uh, I always plant some brassicas to, you know, to go as far into the winter as possible. But, you know, there's not a lot at that spring time period that I have from a food plot end. And this is where the light really went off and why I answered your question. What do I like the most habitat-wise? That early successional vegetation? Yes. If you look at the timing, that stuff is greening up then, and that is providing extremely high-quality food as long as you're managing it well and getting those broadleys, which is important. But even more important is it is providing that at green up. It is providing it at the time that deer need it more than any other time of the year. So that is one of the reasons I am so excited about manage early successional vegetation
1: i think that it's really important to to look at you know like like you said you kind of gone back and backdated some of these important uh, changes and developments just in in the life of or the the cycling of bucks and does but we got to look at like the natural world and, and how plants are working at that time too these things they're either perennials that we're talking about or they're annual species and they've the seed has already been planted from last year or it already has a developed root system. So it's nothing that we have to go physically plant and and put the seed in the ground at the right time, cultivate, and, and, and hopefully it will propagate itself. It's already there. So when the soil temperature gets right... The seed's there and it, it pops and germinates or the root system is already there warming up and begins to mobilize the nutrients where things will bud out. Things will then leaf out and take place. And spring naturally, I will say, occurs much earlier than a lot of the man-made things that we try and incorporate and and um, plant ourselves. It, there's a big disconnect. We're talking month and a half to 2 months in a lot of different places this disconnect of naturally occurring things and these these man-made I want to call them just food plots but essentially food plot agricultural setting type of plants that we commonly attribute a lot of benefit to game species but but truthfully that window that you've talked about Kip is so important in the different life cycles of animals but plants there's a lot of things happening within the plant community as well that we can easily walk past and easily miss
2: no absolutely and you know there, there's nothing wrong with food plots just as mayors we need to realize that the food plots aren't the only thing we need to be doing Definitely. we need to be providing for other stuff that is fulfilling what deer need prior to those food plots taking off in you know late spring and early summer and really free feeding so it's
1: more about not missing
2: that earlier window, that's so critical for deer.
1: Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And, you know, I, I guess when we're looking at, um, and we often talk about it or, or may reference it from, a, from an important standpoint, um, but when we look at the crude protein levels of given plants— mentioned earlier soybeans is is 28 to 35 typically when again this is this is the point not when they're planted or or just popping but you know when they've germinated and are actively growing so much later june july time frame but that's roughly crude protein level uh, of soybeans we can look at other species um naturally occurring green briar blackberry um, young goldenrod desmodium pokeberry and and things and that ballpark will range typically sixteen ish to upwards of twenty eight percent naturally occurring you know in in that realm of of crude protein levels. But all the research I've done and and I'll let you speak on this, but when a buck is developing antlers and coming through the spring roughly, his diet needs to consist. Roughly sixteen percent crude protein, and in a, a doe when she's either lactating or that that late development of a fawn, is roughly eighteen percent. Is that correct? And and if so, when they're foraging on all these other species, what what is the benefit of all the additional protein that they that they consume? Let's say.
2: So you are correct with that, and seasonal protein needs of, of deer vary, but, mm-hmm. but you're right you know, for the most part, uh, and I, I, vividly remember at graduate school at the university of New Hampshire, uh, when I ran the deer research facility, you know, our, our food that they got there was a pelleted ration that was made. And, uh, and that was a uh, 16% protein, you know, mm-hmm. that they got year round, that was it. So sure. we fed them browse and stuff, but that more than meets everything that they need for full growth. So yes, the cool, good thing about it is yes. Soybeans are much higher. Um, However, there's only so much of that, you know, that, uh, that deer can use or their body can use. So to say, gosh, our soybeans a lot better than, you know, pokeweed or, or something that is, you know, 16 or 70 percent, you know, not really. <laughs> so deer are getting out of that what they need. And, you know, there's all different varying amounts of minerals, you know, uh, and protein levels and all those plants. The good thing to know that for the average person who wants to just manage that is, is if you do a good job and get the, a variety of those broadleaf plants there, you are going above and beyond what the deer's protein requirements are. You don't need to know the protein requirements, for, I mean the protein amounts for every individual plant. Certainly Just true. know that, hey, that type of environment and those plants, you are more than meeting what deer need for that time of year. So uh, that, that makes it very simple for me, and I like to simplify things like that. So <laughs> yeah, you, know, you can you can rest assured knowing you, you are getting them what they need and then some. So I think that's a very that, encouraging fact.
1: Yeah, I think it's super encouraging to know that, hey, just what what's naturally out there. If I do the right type of management, if I encourage or disturb the ground or have enough sunlight, naturally what's going to come up is going to be. And I don't want sufficient or adequate to seem as if it's like inferior to maybe something that is above and beyond. It's not like bigger is necessarily better in this situation where we're talking about the composition of protein in a diet for white-tailed deer at this time frame adequate means hey you're doing and it's offering everything that it needs to above and beyond is is simply just not necessary and and, and they're they're just passing it through their bodies but they're taking what they need and and that is 100% sufficient so like you said the simple aspect of that is is a lot of reassurance for those who are out there focusing a lot on managing their, their native plant communities, wherever they may be. And, and those species that you've talked about, that, that you're trying to encourage on your property in north central Pennsylvania, is a lot of the exact same species that someone in Mississippi may find, someone in Missouri may find, or Iowa, Illinois, Virginia, they're so common across the landscape that although we might be in different latitudes or regions, those plants are essentially still there.
2: Yeah, for for a large part, you know, what's funny is they have different uh, local common names, you know, Uh some people call them different things, but you're right, a lot of the ones, you know, are across a big expanse of the whitetails range and you know, I find it very comical, you know, and I learn all the plants that I can, and I think it makes me better as a manager, and as a teacher, and, and as a hunter, but uh, I think it's funny that a lot of the ones that we find there that are just exceptional for deer have, you know, locally, you know, kind of negative names associated with them, <laughs> yes. like ragweed, yeah. pokeweed, jewelweed. Uh, uh-huh. you know, I'll take ragweed, pokeweed, and jewelweed all day long
1: on my oh. property.
2: I would love to be inundated with it. You know, deer love all of those. and you know, it's funny because those that means exactly, you know, when we start with talking about fallow fields and something different, it's a whole different mindset. You know, these are not something that's planted in nice, neat rows and everything looks exactly the same. Doesn't mean it's bad for deer. It's quite the opposite. It's perfect for deer. Yeah, it's us as hunters and managers that need to recognize, hey, this doesn't need to look like, you know, a very manicured clover field or a manicured, you know, a non uh Uniform a uh, soybean field or something, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's something that's a little different, and as uh, many there's a lot of times, you know, us or we have to get over the fact that. Yeah, it looks weedy. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. That's a really, really good thing. I,
1: so, um, I, I sometimes get encouraged when there's weeds coming up in food plots. like, well, I didn't have to plant that one. And, and you can walk out there in most situations and find that there is browse on those species despite there being a soybean every single step that they can take. They're still choosing and selecting that type of browse.
2: Yeah, I was in a perfect story that I was in uh, working in Western Kentucky uh, several mm-hmm. years ago. We're actually where we're teaching a deer stewer class, and uh, and a guy had a, a food plot that he had planted. Actually, it was a mix of corn and soybeans. Yep. And uh, it was uh, he had fenced off to keep deer. I was a very tiny plot in a high density. It had a fenced off, and uh, even around the outside where some of the, the soybeans had made it. Um, the field was infested with Uh pigweed. I I don't know if I've ever seen that much pigweed before. And, uh, with, I, you know, My hand on the Bible, as we stand, I swear to God, there was as many pigweed plants browsed as there were soybeans. I swear to God. (laughs) And the the landowner was looking, he's like, what is wrong? What what is this? And he said, it looks like pigweed, but it can't be because deer are hammered at us. That's exactly what it is. Now, I had never seen pigweed eaten as hard as it was at that field. But it was a good testament that, hey, you know. Soybeans are at the top of their preference list, no doubt. However, they still want a variety. You know, they need that other stuff too, and uh, mm-hmm. so they were making good use of it. So I love that, it. I really opened his eyes.
1: I love it. You know, and, and uh, there, there's a lot to be said about like the whole food plot marketing side of things. But, but deer, I, you just need to spend time outside. In your your woods, your timber, um, or your fields, your old fields, and just look and see what they're selecting in your area, and and the timing in which that they're selecting those specific species, because that's your proof. That's what you're working with. Those are the individuals that you're trying to promote and provide the best forage for. It may not be maybe be a little bit different situation um, in Iowa than it is in South Carolina, but you need to be looking at your property specifically and. What what they're choosing to select and forage on, and if you have those species and they're hammering them, that is a thumbs up. Again, it's that reassurance. But Kip, you know, going in, going into, let's say that June one, June fifteenth time frame, from an antler development standpoint, on average, what what percentage of antlers have already been developed then at that point?
2: Well, you figure, you know, they essentially are going through April, May, June, and July. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then, you know, sometimes a little bit of March and then into August a little bit. So by the time that you get to uh, mid-June, you know, you you are at or past the halfway point. Certainly. So uh, now they can, certainly they're going to grow, you know, you're going to put on a bunch of inches um, after that. But you are, you know, you're not going to, you know grow a tremendous amount from that point. So you're past the halfway point, which means, you know, in with antlers, you're back up one step. You know, the the secondary mm-hmm. sexual characteristics, which means extra nutrition goes there. The whole body, body growth, body maintenance, recovering from asthma, that all takes precedence. Yeah. So that first half of that not only is that deer trying to grow antlers, you know, it's also trying to regenerate everything at a loss from the last winter. All the more reason to make sure your habitat is rocking Then, So uh, but once you get to that point, that's often then where, okay, we have lots of stuff that's green now. And If it's an agricultural area, you also have some other food available. But if you have really limited them up to that point, they're never going to be even close to what their potential is. Even if your food plots start rocking them, so you've just lost too much of the the season at that point to to to, uh, to completely catch up. So Absolutely, they can still be respectful, no doubt, but they're not even coming close to what their potential is Certainly. from either a body growth or an antler growth standpoint.
1: Certainly, and and the the I know there's someone out there thinking, oh, well, then I'll just plant. I'll plant my food plots earlier and and, and pre-show pre-recording we were talking about just the kind of crazy spring we've had it seemed like it popped early and then all of a sudden winter wanted to rear its ugly head we got late frost here and I I was in uh, Missouri and Kentucky when those were happening and you talked about just a week ago you had snow and ice up in your portion of the country it's like backdating or trying to to push the envelope and when you're actually planting soybeans to to make a bitter a bigger window that's not the answer the risk is way too high for all the resources you're putting into a food plot to be risking planting that early
2: no that's right and for the vast majority of whitetails range uh you, you you cannot plant early enough to to make up for that window yes Yes. Now, there's certainly there are places in the southern U.S. where you know you can start a lot sooner and you know the growing season is a lot longer. But uh, as a rule, um, you can you just physically cannot plant early enough, you know, to have that whole window covered. So you need to take advantage of early successional vegetation, you know, or else a tremendous amount of you know winter rye or winter wheat or something from the year before to carry over, mm-hmm. and even then deer are going to get tired of it even if there's more than that than they can consume just because of their nature and their need to eat a bunch of different things yeah so yeah so d- don't try to you know fight mother nature and just think well i'll plant an extra 5 10 50 100 or a 1, thousand acres next not going to work <laughs> you know do yourself you would be way better off commit to this early succession of vegetation yeah mother nature help you
1: absolutely so when when antlers are developing a lot a lot of times people are just kind of wondering like okay h- how's that working what are they comprised of and then how do how do they harden like what what is that process like and and um when they are growing a lot of the composition is of proteins correct
2: well the the majority of the minerals are calcium and phosphorus mm-hmm. So uh, that's the largest part of, of a hardened antler. Right. So as they're growing, it's basically blood. It's, you know, it's a blood supply. They're you know, full of nerves. That's why they don't like you to touch them. If you could touch them, they, those velvet antlers are warm because of that blood. So uh, it, uh, it, it's one of the miracles of nature how they actually can convert those, uh, those cells you know, to go grow from growing you know, those antlers and then hardening them. But, uh, yeah, all blood when they're in velvet. And then uh, end of summer – they ossify or mineralize, or mm-hmm. essentially harden, from the base all the way out to the tips, and then uh, then shed that velvet, and then uh, then all the good things happen from from a honey net.
1: Yeah, absolutely, it, it's incredible because the buck's body, as they're building up these resources to mobilize from their skeletal system, the the hardening process, they're building up that mineral component and and actually put it into. The antlers. And, and that, like, it's a temporary osteoporosis. Their their body actually goes through, their bones get slightly more brittle um, through that process. Is that correct?
2: That's absolutely right. Yep. And uh, that's one of the reasons that deer are uh, so sought after by medical researchers mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, the, the amount of minerals necessary to, to, to harden their antlers uh, over the very short period of time that those antlers harden, the, the need for them is far greater than the deer can get from the wild so they've developed a way that they can as you say pull them out of the long bones of their body yep mineralize those antlers and then pay those minerals back to their body over the course of the next uh, couple of months now we understand that yeah okay this is what they do what we don't understand is exactly how they do that and that's why uh, doctors you know are looking at that because if we could figure that out, you know, we could end osteoporosis today. Sure. So uh, it's it's a it's amazing, you know, what they're able to do with that, and that's one more reason to manage for early successional vegetation because those broadleaf plants have such high mineral contents, far higher than grasses or most of the things uh, that you know the deer come across. So, um, you know, we, we've talked about a bunch of other benefits. One more is the high mineral content that those broadleaf plants have which helps deer you know with everything but part of the mineralization process uh, as well
1: it's it's incredible just how important a forb is and 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 a lot of times you're like it's the broadleaf it's the thing that sticks you pokes you will grow wherever it's often looked at as a weed but when when you understand whitetails you learn to very quickly appreciate forbs that that are growing across the landscape because it just seems like at every turn, at every phase that a whitetail is going through, it plays a role. It plays an important role in the development and the cycling. Um, and, and we haven't even talked about fawns or anything like that. But one thing you were you were mentioning is is the the hardening of antlers and the um, minerals and the, and the different minerals that go through there. There's been a lot of research and, there, and, and there's a lot of discussion about adding or supplementing minerals on the landscape through mineral blocks um, or mixes. Can you talk about what role that plays in the development of antlers um, for a for whitetail and some of the research that's been conducted comparing those who have had supplemental feed? uh excuse me supplement mineral and those who have not in uh research
2: sure uh, there's you know it's widely believed across uh, the hunting community you now that the minerals are good for deer and they help deer and, and it seems so basic and so logical mm-hmm. right we take vitamins yeah those are good for us or, you know deer if you put minerals out deer come to them they eat them they dig holes in the ground for them you know they've got to be helping but a long For a long time, people have been doing research on this, and, and there's never been a single study that showed that mineral supplementation did anything to help body weights, did anything to help antler growth, did, did anything to help wild deer. And uh, now there's a lot of research in the livestock world that shows, oh, yeah, mineral supplementation is key. Sure. And there's a lot of work in the captive deer industry that shows, oh, yeah, mineral supplements help tremendously. So, you know, a lot of professionals, myself included, thought, you know what, maybe we just haven't identified what the link is in the wild deer, but it's got to be helping them, so we should do this. Well, over the past five years, uh, my thinking on this has really changed, Mm -hmm. and in large part because of research done by Dr. Craig Harper from the University of Tennessee, uh, Dr. Marcus Lashley, who's now at the University of uh, Florida, looking at mineral content of certain deer forages. And... uh, this is when we start understanding you know how high the minerals are in these broadleaf plants that deer are eating. And now, essentially now what we realize and this all comes together is because deer eat such a wide variety of plants and because they are so selective on what they want to pick and free ranging deer have the ability you know to, to travel and find these broadleaf plants, it's most likely, Is that is where they are getting this mineral needs fulfilled, and it's probably why the the mineral supplementation has never been shown to help them at all, because they're meeting all of those needs through the natural vegetation. Now, in cattle, one of the reasons why cattle do show improvements with it is because… Cows don't eat many forbs. There are some, mm. obviously, clover, alfalfa, chicory. But for the most part, cattle eat grasses. And the mineral content of grasses is far less than broadleaf plants. So, And cattle tend to be in pens or you know in pastures where they don't have the access to, to forage as freely as deer. So it makes total sense why cows would benefit, and the research shows it. Same with captive deer. They're in a pen. You know, in most parts, they're being fed a powder grain and other things. They don't have the, the freedom to to search out the broadleaf plants, so the mineral supplementation helps them as well. However, with wild deer, since they can select these broadleaf plants, and as more and more people now are making them available to them, I think that's probably why we've never been able to show any benefit. Now, it doesn't mean deer don't like them. You, know, you put them out, deer absolutely will. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of camera surveys and I use minerals, you know, to attract deer to be able to, to survey them each year. Um, it's kind of like your kids at the, at the grocery store, you know, they see the candy, they want the candy. <laughs> and if you give it to me, the heck out of it, yeah. it doesn't mean they need it.
1: That's <laughs> exactly like right. That's exactly so right. I
2: think that's kind of like that with, with deer and minerals. And I think that's why we don't see the benefits from a research perspective because you know if we do a good job and we provide those broadleaf plants, nature is providing all the minerals that deer need and uh, and then they're really good at finding them and fulfilling their own needs.
1: I think it's it's very comical, I think, when we look at the way God created all these intricate processes, and when you understand, What makes a whitetail tick, the the importance of photo period and the cycling, um, gestation, lactation, antler development, all correlating with spring green up and the forbs and how they that they are concentrate selectors when they're browsing the tips and the ends of these broadleaf plants like it is and this is just whitetails doesn't talk about the complexity of quail and wild turkey and rough grouse and, and or cattle or bison when you just learn and study intricately one animal and how it works itself through the environment it's amazing and it's incredible i think we we oftentimes underestimate that creation or and and perfectly designed um creation because we're like oh well if i do this i'll help it out i'll add a mineral block or i'll plant these soybeans and i'll i'll give them what they really want and and it's hard to say no that that's not what they really want because they come to a mineral block and they go to soybeans very heavily and feed on them and browse on them and it does benefit them but what we don't see and what we don't take time i think enough to study is to what if we don't have those? And what if, what if what if we just watch deer do what they naturally do, and and rely on managing the native landscape? We could have those same exact experiences, but they're just going to look a little bit different. It's it's going to be going out there, letting things go fallow, or letting nature run its course in an old field situation, or taking a chainsaw out and really um, opening up the canopy and running prescribed fire through uh, your woodland. So. There's so many. I think I think it's honestly observations uh, dictate a lot of um, where we where we put importance in the entire scheme of management for whitetails. How we observe really can skew us based on what you know. I guess in comparison to to the facts that you're talking about, Kip, and and just the importance of Forbes from not only forage. But for the mineral and the functionality of the the body itself, super critical.
2: Nope. I agree, and uh, I'll throw in one another benefit to those those fields. You know, given that they provide a lot of cover. Um, and they provide a lot of cover at the time of the year mm-hmm. when fawns are hitting the ground. yes So yeah. uh, you know, people often will, you know, hey, I want to manage for for fawns. I want to make sure I have good fawning cover. You know, and they have you know, like a little block here, a little block there, and you know, that's the one time of the year that white tails are actually territorial. Mm-hmm. Some people think that bucks are. They're not. You know, the does are when they're dropping their fawns. So yeah. if you have some really really high quality fawning cover, but it's kind of small. It's only going to be used by, you know, a very small number of does, you know, it's way better to have a bunch of cover that is spread out and allow a lot more does to take advantage of that. And it is so easy to provide good fawning cover from those early successional vegetation fields, those old fields. So, uh, that, uh, you know, particularly today where people are, have a heightened uh, sense of awareness with regard to fawn predation and, mm-hmm. you know, coyotes and bobcats and bears and all that. So uh, if you want to give fawns a fighting chance, boy, you know, a nice old field those fallow foul field uh, will absolutely do that.
1: Oh, no doubt. And and it's funny, too, you know, not long after being born two, three weeks those fawns are foraging on green vegetation that happen to be forbs as well. That are hopefully where they're laying down. They're not having to walk very far to be able to forage on them. But very quickly, they are seeking out those same same forages um, that adult deer are are benefiting from. So it's just it's it's crazy how quickly these uh, these animals um, definitely ad- I wouldn't say adapt, but but quickly utilize. Uh, weeds and Forbes, it, it's amazing
2: no that's right you know and the cool thing about them is not everybody can plant a food plot i should mm-hmm. say unless you know if you have any open ground at all anybody can you don't need equipment to plant a food plot but you know some people are certainly limited in what they're able to do from an equipment standpoint um i'm a huge fan of fire not everybody can can run prescribed fire across the property and, certainly. you know where i am in pennsylvania you know it's very difficult for private landowners
1: mm-hmm. so
2: you can't however you know, and not everybody can cut trees, yeah. <laughs> but everybody can manage a fallow field, or anybody can manage early successional vegetation. So that's you know another thing that's so cool about it is that it is available to anybody that has you know openings like that. So whether they you know are half an acre, an acre, ten acres, twenty acres, fifty acres, whatever, at whatever scale. Um, it's something that is absolutely achievable by any landowner, and uh, and I think that's pretty cool.
1: Oh, it's it's super cool. Uh, it kind of, again, it just goes back to the, to the simplicity of uh, whitetail management, it, and it can be simplified um, pretty easily. But um, you, you're a big proponent of fallow fields, and I think a lot of people are honestly sometimes just scared to let a field go, or scared to not do something. But um, we've seen it on your Instagram following quite a bit, Um, just watching and looking what comes back after planting corn one year and then that following spring, not going back and planting and just letting that field go fallow. You have that experience, Kip. What would you say to someone? And, And besides just step one of not doing anything, what else do they need to know? When it comes to fallow field management or, or they've got, let's just say, cornfields or soybean food plots, and they're like, I'm nervous to start doing fallow fields. Mm-hmm. What do you say to that?
2: I tell them, Bill, you know, it's, it's a very easy entry point. yeah, uh, Once they start, they will like it. And, and I tell you, it's from a... From an early succession of vegetation in, I can understand some people's hesitancy to let a field go a few years and all of a sudden, you know, ooh, some of this woody stuff is starting to come and I'm a little nervous about getting it out. However, a fallow field one year is, is very simple. Yes. You know, you take whatever you know, field that you planted in something last year, you know, take just one of them and don't plant it this year. The nice thing of that is, is you will immediately see the benefit of the, social, so, so, uh, the seed bank. You know what is there? Some of these native plants coming up. You'll see that you know it's not costing anything this year, so you actually can increase the acres that you you know have in food plots essentially, because you don't have to plant every one every year. And the good thing about it is. You know, at the end of this year, if you think, okay, I'm, I'm just going to get away from me, you can go ahead and, you know, next year, put it back into a full plot mm-hmm. rotation.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, you're
2: not, it's not going to turn woody in one year. No. Um, so, you know, they're, so it's very easy if you're too nervous to get back out. So it's, it's just dipping your toe in the water. What happens though, with almost everybody that does this is they dip their toe in the water and realize, wow, that was way easier for me to manage. That was way cheaper. I'm providing all this great benefit for wildlife, and uh, you know now I can spend my additional money or additional time on other habitat products. So typically, what happens is they dip that toe in the first year, and they jump in head first the next year. It's not a ease into it a little bit after that first year. It's usually, oh wow, I totally get it now, and then that often leads to. Okay, I'll take the next step and do some of this early succession of vegetation management, you know, and let these fields go 2 or 3 or 4 years.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, it's, it's, a, it's it's a great entry point. It's it's a great entry point and it's very quick to get that confidence and I and I encourage people who are doing that to certainly continue to observe those fields as you would a food plot so you can see the um the benefit of those and how wildlife are still correlating and utilizing them on a daily basis and maybe for different things. Maybe you said that food plot always just used to be for a feeding location. Well, maybe now it's offering that adequate cover that deer are choosing to bed instead spend more daylight activity because there's adequate cover, not just maybe foot tall um, soybeans or, or 10 inch tall clover. You can drastically change uh, the way deer will utilize property and given areas. I just letting it go fallow. So Kip, is there anything else before we wrap up that you you kind of want to drive home from a point of understanding the role of native vegetation, antler development in comparison to food plots?
2: Uh, I do. I'll say one more thing about it. And because you know, we've talked a bunch you know, about, you know, from the management end and the biology end, well, that's all great. And I get immersed in it and I love it. But at the end of the day, we haven't talked about the hunting end, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. and I, you know, and I know our camp. When we first started converting stuff, we had some camp members that <laughs> were really. Like, I don't like this, you know. I yeah. like it that you plant that food plot because I'm going to go there and sit, and I don't know about this being really successful. And uh, it doesn't take long at all, and you realize. Hunting is really good in these fields. Yeah. And the reason is, once you get that cover there, you know, deer are so much more comfortable moving during daylight hours in those fields. You know, they feel like they're protected and hidden, but uh, they provide tremendous hunting opportunities. That's incredible. And uh, this really came full circle this past season. We had uh, undoubtedly the best food plot on our farm over the years as far as mm. killing deer, killing mature bucks. You know, and and the the kids at our camp killing anything. And and we are very, very careful with this to not overhunt it because we know how good it is when you go to this blind. I mean, we just know it's just this is automatic. The one spot on the place, if you want to kill something and you have the best chance of killing a mature buck, this is where you go. And uh, that happened to be the field right beside that is one that we had converted to early successional vegetation uh, two years ago. So last year was really the first good hunting season where, you know, it wasn't a, uh, because prior to that, that this field was a cool season perennial pasture for okay. our cattle. Yep. So, uh, you know, we, we got rid of those cool season grasses and, you know, and it came back full of ragweed and goldenrod and jewelweed and just all mm. kinds of, now there was stuff there we didn't want, like horse nettle and thistle sure. and there was some stuff too. So it wasn't, you know, it's not all ice cream, but, It was very good. So, anyway, at the end of the last year's hunting season, we killed one deer in that food plot, and we killed numerous deer in the early successional vegetation (laughs) field beside it. Because what's happened is deer are out there, you know, moving like crazy. Even though deer are in that food plot before dark because of how lightly we hunt it, Mm -hmm. you know, not anywhere near to the extent they're in that field. And it got, you know, it was kind of late in the season. It was funny because we got into the blind with my kids and uh my nephew we had there was four or five of us in there the one night and uh you know as we're setting up my nephew who had not hunted it yet he had hunted that food plot several years sure uh immediately he's opened up the window to look into the food plot <laughs> you know and my daughter tells me like Justin, no no no, look this the way the action's gonna be and over he said, here Halls. he said what <laughs> you know back into the field and she said trust me look <laughs> So what it was they had learned like you know, we're going to see way more deer out in this early successional vegetation field, even than we are in this phenomenal food plot.
1: And oh, uh, I like you know what,
2: it just made me smile and think, yeah, my, she gets it. Like, she's right. That's oh, absolutely yeah. right. And like, <laughs> I kick myself to thinking, like, why didn't I do this sooner? So I love it. So I think that's kind of the, the icing on the cake, as you know, in addition to all of the benefits that it provides to deer and other wildlife, your hunting is even better too. Yeah. So, uh, the, and it just doesn't get any better. That is a true win-win-win situation all
1: the way around. It, it is, and it, and it's like, why is it? Why isn't this like the most talked-about thing that we can do? And hopefully, with this podcast, it's encouraging people to uh, absolutely absolutely implement these types of techniques on their property. Um, and one of the other Cool things that I think when you're when you're just observing deer, whether they're a target deer or a non-target in a food plot situation, um you can oftentimes see deer being very vigilant, throwing their head up and looking around, and constantly, you know, head on a swivel kind of thing, and ears are turning and peeking and moving in different different ways, catching different sound. They just seem to be more on edge. But when you observe deer moving across an old field situation, Kip, do, do you observe deer expressing those same type of um, uh, that same type of alertness or level of alertness, I should say?
2: Not anywhere near to the same level. And there are certainly times where you can observe that. Like, you know, if you know, there's a coyote out there or something, sure. but for the most part, it's such a protective environment for mm-hmm. them. They can escape easily. They know that they're not in the open. There's still food there. They're able to move. And, you know, hunters say, God, they didn't come out of the woods till almost dark. Well, deer don't want to wait until after dark to come out either. That's right. So, you know, if you have feels like this, they're, they're happy to come out, you know, and move through those during shooting hours. And uh, so now they are, they've, it, anybody that watches deer in those environments it's very clear very quickly how comfortable they are, even during shooting hours, you know, being in and, and moving through those. So uh, that's, a, that's a, a nice benefit.
1: Absolutely. Well, Kip, I think you crushed it. I think you, you hit, like, all the points as, as squarely as possible on this, this subject and um, I certainly appreciate your time and coming on today uh, and your experience and, and all that you do with the QDMA, uh, such a fantastic organization, and encourage everybody who is not currently a member to get your membership to the QDMA. Um, Kip, what are what are some um, cool things that QDMA is doing right now? And uh, we'll wrap up the podcast after that.
2: All right. Well, uh, we always have a bunch of educational uh Items on the menu, uh, courses, info, etc., cetera, that, that we share. Uh, Field to Fork, which mm-hmm. is our adult uh, on, our, you know, onset hunting program where we teach adults how to hunt, is becoming bigger and bigger. And it's having measurable impacts uh, on our, our hunter decline numbers, which is extremely important. So, uh, that's, uh, I'm extremely proud that, uh, that we're as heavily involved in that program as we are, which, you know, has lots of facets, mentoring people, sharing venison, um, just a lot of really good stuff. So, uh, something that uh, as an employee and a, and a life member of QDMA, I am very,
1: very proud of. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your time and um, wishing you the best with the remainder of turkey season. Hopefully you and your family and anybody else who comes up and hunts can uh, enjoy some fantastic turkey hunting. And um, thank you again, sir, for your time.
2: Absolutely. Always good to talk to you and uh, thank you for, for all the good work you guys do. And uh, congratulations again on winning the uh, the 20, uh the Professional or our Brothers Professional Deer Manager of the Year Award. So uh, very well done. Uh, I know you guys are pretty humble, and uh, all of your listeners may not realize that, but uh, national award that you guys knocked down. So uh, congratulations for that, and uh, always good talking to you, my friend.
1: Absolutely, thank you very much, sir. Well, that right there is about. As good as it gets. Thank you, sir. Kip is the man, the myth, and the legend from QDMA. He not only provides science to back up all of this information, but he is another guy who is obviously out there implementing all of these tactics. And if it didn't make sense from a managing and and trying to promote quality deer on his own property— he wouldn't do it, and, and that's why he was the perfect candidate to be able to come onto the podcast and talk about promoting native and natural plant communities in the form of Forbes and early successional plant communities. We cannot stress enough the importance that they play. Food plots are fun, guys. We talk about food plots. We implement food plots. We recommend food plots but not at the cost or the expense of managing the native plant communities that are out there. Again, sufficient, adequate is what we're looking for because we know that they are supplying everything that whitetail deer need. Whether you are a buck developing antlers at this time of the year, starting to get a lot of pictures from people. Hey, what do you think about this one? Hey, what do you think about this one? I'm, I'm late on my food plots this year. Well, heck, so are we. It's been raining a bunch, but I wouldn't say we're late. Because is there a bad time to plant? Um, probably not. The conventional planting times—that's just conventional. We got to think outside the box sometimes. And based on the management that's occurred on on the properties that that we work and we manage, I, there's not a, a time and a period in which the food plots are late because the native and the natural plant communities are absolutely getting it right now and doing everything that we need them to for the benefit of the wildlife that are utilizing them and utilizing the property right now. And so there's not like this stress of I've got to get food plots in because truthfully, they're not going to do what you probably think they're going to do. They don't play that role. And if and if you are relying a hundred percent on the food plot planting every single spring to get you, or or to get you and and the wildlife, let's say through or in the peak, the most the best condition they can to grow a larger set of antlers, to grow or um to to produce a fawn or to nurse multiple fawns uh, every year, that's 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 the wrong way to look at it. And and again, here was perfect science to um, illustrate that so guys again thank you so much for listening to the land legacy podcast you guys um, really really make our day Every single week when when we're able to drop this podcast and and get feedback from you all um, regarding the information that is shared and we love seeing updates from everyone across the country of what they're applying to their property how they're managing it um, especially when it falls right in line with um, things that we've talked about or discussed here on the podcast for for a couple years now so guys keep sending that in keep keep that feedback coming. We love it through social media, Facebook, Instagram. You can follow us along at um, YouTube. Subscribe there. We're dropping a lot of videos. Right now, they're kind of Heavy on the turkey hunting, but that's not going to uh, be like that forever because we've got a lot of management windows here that we're trying to hit with some good content. So be sure to check those out, um, and then just continue to share the podcast with everyone that you guys know. That the message hopefully um, is is solid, rooted in science, and we're we're going forward and um, sharing education on the wise use of natural resources to better wildlife that are out there and manage plant communities that these wildlife need that we love to chase we love to see and we love to improve so guys thank you for following along improving the land and um, if you do have questions regarding consulting please go to www.landandlegacy.com Dot TV. Click on the consulting tab, and then there's your entry down below. Plug in your information, and we will be sure to respond to you. Thanks so much for listening. Guys, take care. Have a great week. See you next week.